Welcome to the Technicast, a podcasting community open to all arts and humanities researchers. I'm Julian, and together with Joe and Polly, every month we invite a researcher to introduce their own work about a fascinating topic. Today we're continuing on a similar theme as last month, the link between literature and place. In this episode, Edwin Gilson talks about how the consequences of the climate crisis, such as wildfires and droughts, are affecting Californian mythologies of Eden or Paradise. Edwin looks at this through the lens of contemporary environmental fiction. Here he is now with his essay called Enduring Eden. Tucked away in a secluded spot in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, Northern California, there once stood a charmingly homespun wooden road sign. You are ascending into paradise, it read. As promised, the sign pointed the way to paradise, a small, peaceful town in which some 27,000 people lived in the shadows of pine and oak trees, a world far removed from California's famous metropolises. It is difficult today not to speak of paradise in the past tense. While the town still exists in some form as a place on a map, it was transformed beyond recognition by the so-called campfire of autumn 2018. Driven by strong winds, the fire swept through paradise with a merciless incision, destroying countless properties and killing 86 residents. Fires have always been a feature of California's forest ecosystem, but in their book about the catastrophe, Journalists Alistair G and Danny Anguiano argue that the campfire represented a, quote, new and ferocious kind of climate change inflected wildfire. One of the longest and most severe droughts in California's recorded history, meanwhile, occurred over the last decade, and Death Valley in Southern California was recently believed to have registered the highest recorded temperature anywhere on Earth. California has always been a place of environmental extremes. In an age of accelerating global heating, though, parts of the state may be on the threshold of becoming unlivable. State Governor Gavin Newsom, responding to the damage of last year's devastating fire season, called California a, quote, canary in the coal mine for climate change. I'm Edwin Gilson, a first-year doctoral student at the University of Surrey, funded by Techne. My PhD research explores the ways in which the physical realities of environmental crisis are challenging or even changing the long-standing mythologies of California, as reflected in the 21st century environmental fiction of the state. The symbolism of a town called Paradise burning to the ground is painfully unsubtle. And Paradise is far from the only place or thing loaded with spiritual significance in California. Think of Los Angeles, the Angels, for instance, or the native Joshua tree, so-called because Mormon immigrants crossing the desert perceived the tree's limbs as resembling the biblical figure Joshua, pointing the way westward. A lot of these names, with their connotations of divinity, are a product of the religious values held by Spanish, Mexican, and to a lesser extent Anglo settlers in the state. California's large number of Native American populations had their own folklore and oral tales connected to the land. And of course, the early Euro-American view of California as a prelapsarian paradise, which I will expand upon later, was dependent upon the physical 
and psychological erasure of the native presence. As numerous historians have pointed out, California has often been represented as a place where the material meets the mythical. James Key suggests that, quote, a definition of California always refers not just to the real place called California, but to an imagined place of the same name. When commentators attempt to define California, they use powerful human metaphors such as paradise, Eden, El Dorado, places that exist in the imagination, end quote. In the historical literature and fiction of California, this image of the Golden State as an Eden has been intrinsically linked to the breadth and beauty of its natural world. As Andrew Roll and Arthur Verge highlight, the state, quote, offers virtually every climatic, geologic and botanic combination, end quote. However, this topographical diversity also means California is vulnerable to a range of environmental threats, from drought to deforestation, crop failure to coastal erosion. In the 21st century novels I'm analysing in my PhD project, the spirituality and mythology that has often been associated with the Californian landscape is challenged by the ramifications of climate and ecological crisis, but not to the extent that the state ceases to be perceived as an earthly Eden. Far from it. In novels such as Claire Bay Watkins' Goldfame Citrus, Eden Lupicki's California, T.C. Boyle's When the Killing's Done, and Richard Powers' The Overstory, it remains the case that, in D.J. Waldy's words, California's landscapes, its land uses, its physicality, are intimately bound with mythology. California's mounting environmental problems could be construed as signs or symptoms of the Anthropocene, a proposed word for our current geologic epoch. The term is shorthand for the notion that, quote, humans and our societies have become a global geophysical force, to cite the group of scientists who coined the term, manifested in humankind's transformative imprint upon the Earth's atmosphere, geology, oceans and ecosystems. Literature scholars have begun to grapple with the philosophical quandaries of this new era, with Kate Marshall and Tobias Bose identifying a loss of human agency at its centre. Quote, Human beings in this new epoch can no longer be defined as acting upon the natural world. Instead, they must also be described as being acted upon by that same world on an ontological rather than strictly existential level. But simply, a large amount of Anthropocene fiction and accompanying literary criticism hinges on the sobering idea that humanity has set this new epoch into motion by, for example, burning fossil fuels, and yet the same epoch now appears out of our control. Science fiction has been quicker to address this planetary concern, imagining future worlds radically transformed by the effects of the Anthropocene, but literary fiction is catching up. As Sam Solnit contends, it has become almost impossible for authors to write without some knowledge of the scientific consensus that humans are shaping the fabric of the planet in a manner hitherto unimagined. Anthropogenic climate change and environmental breakdown are clearly global events. The greenhouse gas emissions of one nation might contribute to the disruption of weather patterns the other side of the world, with countries in the global south bearing the brunt of climate chaos despite their own negligible emissions. Susan Colin suggests that the planetary perspective of Anthropocene research across ac academic disciplines is, quote, challenging mainstream conceptualizations of regions themselves as bounded spaces, end quote. I argue, though, that a region-specific analysis of environmental 21st century fiction 
can produce valuable insights into literature's capacity to reflect the changing cultural meaning of place and places in the Anthropocene. In focusing on the recent fictional output of one particular place, I respond to Adam Trexler's call for a localised analysis of Anthropocene and climate change fiction. Trexler writes, more research is needed on the impact of climate change on specific places. Places have specific histories that are simultaneously cultural and geographic. The meaning of places also changes as real disasters befall them. So, I'm looking through a regional lens in my project, but why California? Well, it is difficult to think of a place in the Western world that has been more romanticised and mythologised than the Golden State. This is partly because the word California entered history as a myth, to quote Kevin Starr. The first known written appearance of the name can be traced back to 1510 and a best-selling romance novel by Spanish writer Garcia Rodriguez de Montalvo entitled Les Salas de Esplandian. Quote, On the right hand of the Indies, there is an island called California, very close to the side of the terrestrial paradise. The island was the strongest in all the world with its steep cliffs and rocky shores. It is believed that the Spanish explorers who later bestowed the name California upon a landmass in the New World, today's Baja California Peninsula in Mexico, carried a copy of Montalvo's novel with them on their expedition. As a result of its fictional origin, California existed in the European mind before it existed as a quantifiable reality. The association between California and the kind of terrestrial paradise dreamt up by Montalvo might now sound rather cliched, but this does not change the fact that this association has continually been perpetuated in the cultural representation of the state, and particularly its fiction. Katarzyna Kovac-McNeese posits that, quote, it is fiction that provides a proper vehicle for exploring the myth of California. From the very beginning until today, the writing that has come out of California has participated in the creation and sustaining of the myth." End quote. And given that this myth has always been closely associated with California's natural spaces, I'm interested in what happens to the myth when the land itself undergoes environmental change. California has historically defined itself against the backdrop of its nature. Its ancient sequoia trees, almighty mountains, golden beaches, even its rich and fertile soil. So what happens when these environments are degraded as a consequence of human activity? Does 21st century California fiction continue to represent the state as an Eden, or does this myth crumble in the Anthropocene? David Wyatt argues that a sense of loss, an expulsion from or failure to locate the desired Eden within California, is a defining characteristic of the state's literature, from John Murr to John Steinbeck, Mary Austin to Joan Didion. Does contemporary environmental California fiction conform to this archetype? By way of merely beginning to explore these questions, I'll now turn briefly to two novels published over the last decade, both of which reflect on the issue of biodiversity loss in California. T.C. Boyle's When the Killing's Done, published in 2011, and Richard Powers' The Overstory, published in 2018. At the thematic core of both of these novels is environmental degradation caused by humans. When the Killing's Done revolves around the efforts of National Park Service biologists to maintain a healthy ecosystem balance on the Channel Islands off the coast of California, it is gradually revealed that the introduction of invasive animal species, which disrupted the island ecosystems in the first place, can be traced to human activity dating back to the mid-19th century. 
As such, the National Park Service's quest to cull these dominant invasive species and to protect the threatened species is essentially an attempt to reverse or mitigate the after-effects of human interference in the island's natural worlds. The overstory follows a disparate group of drifters who are eventually united in California in the environmentalist mission to save sequoia trees from logging. The environmental dramas of both novels force their protagonists, and perhaps their readers, to acknowledge themselves as part of a species that is increasingly altering the Earth's biosphere on a local and global scale. Boyle and Powers depict California's natural sites as precarious paradises. In When the Killing's Done, biologist Alma Boy Taksui compares Santa Cruz Island to the, quote, original Eden, the one before Eve, before Adam, before names, end quote. While in the overstory, environmentalist Nick and Olivia experience a shared moment of wonder as they survey an immense forest. Quote, California, American Eden, a world like nothing else on earth, end quote. The willful determination of Alma, Nick and Olivia to position present-day California as a prelapsarian idyll, thereby perpetuating the California Eden myth, is in one sense a psychological reaction to their growing awareness of the Anthropocene's physical realities in the form of biodiversity loss. But of course the paradox of paradise is that it can only ever exist in the mind. To settle and expand upon a promised land is to inevitably turn it into an all-too-real space, in which humans must navigate the complexities of living alongside non-human entities. To quote Kovac McNeese again, the rigidity of the myth stands in clear opposition to the dynamism of nature. End quote. In When the Killing's Done, Amor experiences moments of spiritual elevation on the Channel Islands, fantasising about shaking off her psychological baggage and Anthropocene anxieties in these offshore Edens. Quote, It's quiet, as quiet as the world must have been before the invention of the internal combustion engine. Sometimes, when she's out here alone, she can feel the pulse of something bigger, as if all things animate were beating in unison, a glory and a connection that sweeps her out of herself, out of her consciousness. She feels like a conqueror, like a queen, like the first Chumash woman come ashore 10,000 years ago. End quote. The sense of revelation Alma feels alone on Santa Cruz Island prompts a longing for a pre-industrial age before humans were the dominant geologic force, when the islands, and California generally, truly could be described as virgin territories, to use another quote from the book. The island landscape acts as a repository for Alma's regurgitated projection of regional mythology and history, manifested in her rhapsodic communion with the divine nature and her rather problematic channeling of a pioneering Native American tribeswoman. Inevitably, though, Alma's daydreams only offer temporary relief from the messy realities of the island's ecosystem issues and, by extension, human nature relations in the 21st century. In the overstory, California nature is also said to possess a kind of wondrous spirituality, most notably when Nick and Olivia take residence in the uppermost branches of a sequoia tree as part of an environmental protest. Gazing up at the mammoth tree before their ascent, quote, the feel is primeval, darshan, a face-to-face -face intro to divinity. It's like the morning when life first came up on dry land. Fogs from the world's infancy turn the clock back eons. End quote. As the overstory repeatedly reminds us, some of the California sequoias still standing today are older than Christ. The vast spatial and temporal scale of the sequoia therefore inspires a flight of fantasy in Nick and Olivia, 
as they briefly escape reality by conjuring images not only of a prelapsarian age, but the dawn of biological life itself. Again, the majesty of California nature, and the mythology surrounding it, offers the environmentalists of the overstory fleeting mental solace from the bleak implications of the Anthropocene. The eventual felling of the sequoia, shortly after Nick and Olivia scramble down to the ground into safety, serves as an abrupt reminder of these implications. In both novels, the historic mythos attached to California nature is evoked even as these natural sites and the non-human beings that inhabit them are at an unprecedented state of peril, at least for the standards of recent history. In this sense, it is more accurate to say that such mythos persists as a consequence of, rather than in spite of, the Anthropocene. Ultimately, however, the material repercussions of the human subjugation of nature become impossible to ignore. In the face of escalating biodiversity loss, it is no longer tenable to continue to overlay the physical with the mythical. When the killing's done and the overstory, therefore invite the reader to reflect upon how our current environmental crisis has the potential to distort or dismantle long-standing cultural perceptions of California as a product of both the imagined and the real, an abstract place of earthly delights. In summary, I believe Californian literature is an effective case study for a regional approach to Anthropocene fiction. Fiction has always been a vital vehicle for the perpetuation of regional myth, and these stories are often incredibly enduring. The fact that Montalvo's terrestrial paradise abides in the 21st century fiction of California however indirectly, is proof of the impressive staying power of literary myths. While my focus is California, it is my strong conviction that a place-specific analysis of Anthropocene fiction could be applied to any particularly storied and threatened region, rural or urban, as every region has its own folklore and mythologies. Scientific projections indicate that catastrophes like that which gutted paradise in 2018 will become more and more common. As the various manifestations of the Anthropocene continue to change the environments we know and those we've only read about, fiction can provide us with a greater understanding of how the cultural meanings of places might also change as a result. That was Edwin Gilson with his essay, Enduring Eden, and uh, Edwin joins me in our virtual studio now. Welcome to the Technicast, Edwin. Hi, thanks for having me. So that was a really interesting essay that you sent us. I was really taken with this idea of the enduring myths, and you say that a common trope of the Californian fiction is um, the loss or the failure to find that mythical Eden. So how do you explain that this myth still endures? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to find out, I suppose. I don't have any concrete answers yet, but I think the authors I'm focusing on in this project find the tension between the enduring mythology, as you say, of California and the realities of environmental breakdown, just a really interesting area to explore. It's just a really good narrative device, I think, because it throws up lots of questions around the very nature of mythology and spirituality, even religion, and kind of if those things become increasingly tenable, in the Anthropocene, uh, especially when they're so closely associated with a landscape that is undergoing significant change. So yeah, in the novels I'm looking at, there's always a point or a number of points at which the inherited mythology attached to California nature kind of runs up against the the dire ramifications of, of environmental crisis. And it's that exact point that 
I find quite fascinating and, and really wanted to explore, I think. And as, as I kind of touched on in the essay, I think there's a strange paradox about California in that the majesty and beauty of its natural world kind of legitimizes the Eden metaphor in a way, even despite the effects of environmental degradation. And so kind of an, enables an escape into this prelapsarian kind of fantasy world, as I said in the, in the piece. So I think the myth is challenged or critiqued by the authors I'm studying, but by the very nature of challenging and questioning it, the myth itself in all its forms, you know, Eden Paradise, El Dorado kind of keeps reappearing. It kind of seems irrepressible. What I find interesting is that you, you call it prelapsarian and the idea of Eden is always a, a return to Eden because obviously in, in, our, in our mythology we've been banished from it and it's, uh, it's looking to go back. Do you think there's a parallel with um, climate change in the sense also that we're trying to go back to a level before the Industrial Revolution? So we talk about pre-industrial levels when we talk about the goals. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that comes across hopefully as well in the two novels that I was looking at, there is this constant desire to go back to a this prelapsarian idol that, that never really existed in the first place. But um, yeah, I think California becomes a good symbol for that because a lot of the nature, like I say, kind of legitimizes this idea of an Eden, a kind of untouched, unspoiled Arcadia almost. And again, like that's yet another myth that's attached to California, like the, the idea of Arcadia, which again is not particularly tenable or achievable in real life. So yeah, that's 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 a good question. That's kind of one one of the things I wanted to get at, which is how does the California landscape kind of reinforce that general desire to return to a pre-anthropocene or a, a pre-industrial age, definitely. Mm. On a on a slightly different note, it, it really struck me that you you avoided the use of Hollywood, or maybe you just, you know, it's not part of, of what you're looking at. But do you think that the the myth of Californication that's driven by Hollywood, and, and I don't necessarily mean content, but I mean more the the pull of working in cinema, of making it as an actor. Um, does that have something to do with what you're talking about as well? Has it sort of replaced that myth of El Dorado, or is it just a different embodiment of it? I think it's an embodiment. I think scholars of Californian history would argue that Hollywood and the kind of Californian dream it perpetuates I guess, is definitely a legacy of that age-old conception of California as Eden. It's always a bit simplistic maybe to, to draw it out on such a linear um, kind of scale as that, but certainly that's what um, historical scholars have kind of argued. I get the whole idea of like myth, the Eden myth and everything always seems quite fluffy and, and kind of um, impalpable almost, but I suppose it's difficult to ignore that when even the heavyweight historians of Californian history keep coming back to them, you know, like... It's not. It might sound quite fluffy and and uh, and impalpable, but um, it does exist and it is there. So, but yeah, Hollywood. I mean, it does play into that trope of fiction v reality and the imagined v the real, which is again always at the heart of kind of cultural and historical accounts of California. Um, but I was really keen to focus on California's natural spaces in the twenty first century for the dual reasons that these spaces are becoming increasingly threatened, and as I said in the piece, that they have always been bound up in California's regional mythologies. That's fair enough. Um... So just to try and link up with last month's episode where John Mason talked about the connection between stories and myths, um, you ended on the note that fiction could provide us with greater understanding of how the cultural meaning of places might change. So that's almost uh, taking fiction as a descriptive, as it were. But then you also talk throughout your podcast about how fiction and myths can be generative. So how successful do you think that fiction is or has been in that generative character when it comes to climate change? Mm, yeah, it's an interesting question. I was at a talk recently 
with the novelist Amitav Ghosh, who's who's written a lot about climate change in fiction and inserted climate change into his fiction as well. And an audience member asked him whether he thought novels and films about climate apocalypse became part of a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, in which we, we don't take collective action to mitigate climate change because we perceive that we're all doomed anyway, which I thought was quite an interesting point and one that I hadn't quite considered. But but two of the novels I'm analysing, which are Goldfame Citrus by Claire Bay Watkins in California by Eden Lepicki, are what you might typically class as climate fiction. You know, they depict kind of ravaged Californias in the aftermath of environmental and social collapse, as is often the case in apocalyptic fiction. But yeah, in terms of generative, I mean, California is a bestseller, which that the book, I mean, which shows that such fiction does have a place in the public consciousness. And the overstory, which obviously obviously touched on in the piece, won the Pulitzer Prize. And I recently found out it's been made into a Netflix series by the people who did Game of Thrones, which <laughs> surprised me a little bit. But um, so I think environmental fiction or some of it is clearly becoming more popular, which is good to see. But there is always that aspect that perhaps apocalyptic fiction can just stun us into or stupefy us into <laughs> into silence and kind of non-action but um yeah i mean interesting book in relation to your question about the possibly damaging effect of negative myths is um the parable of the sower by octavia e butler which i'm also incorporating into the my project and and that novel again portrays a california in the grip of environmental catastrophe but points towards a way of kind of reframing our relationship with the natural environments in a more sustainable environmentally conscious way and getting away from a lot of that idea of spirituality and religion in connection to the landscape which makes us think that we aren't agents in our own relationship with nature if you know what I mean so I mean that book was published in 93 but here we are still in the grip of slowly unfolding environmental catastrophe so so who knows I mean you like to think environmental fiction can make a difference to people's attitudes towards the environment and it obviously has but I don't know if that translates to the collective action and changes in mindsets and lifestyles that are desperately required as much as I'd like to kind of insert a note of hope in here but I don't know if you have a note of hope to insert if you do then go ahead yeah I was thinking about one as you were talking you know what note of hope could I end this on but um, (laughs) I guess that's the way we talk about climate change and that's there's a debate about that you know how how best to tackle it to to get action and I don't think we can come up with the answer now in 10 minutes so uh, maybe we'll just leave (laughs) that as an open question for our listeners yes indeed Great. Well, Edwin, thank you very much. I know you're starting off your PhD, so you're still in your first year. So very, very best of luck for it. Thank you. You too. And uh, thanks for coming along. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Technicast. And thanks also to Techne for their support. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share and rate us. If you'd like to submit your own podcast, please get in touch with us at technecaster at gmail.com. You can find out more about our upcoming themes on our website or in Techne's newsletter. We hope you'll join us again next month to discover another researcher's work.